0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Our scripture reading this morning is Acts 13, verses 4 through 12. Uh, In this, we hear what happened when Barnabas and Saul were sent by the church in Antioch to Cyprus. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on them. Uh, Would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts may be freed from worldly affairs, that we might hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 13, verses 4 through 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Praise be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome, everybody. All right. Uh, Have you ever seen a movie or a TV show where the good guys are planning a rescue mission? And they come up with a great plan for how to deal with the bad guys. Uh, But as soon as they try their plan, everything goes wrong. Uh, Have you ever seen that? Their first idea, plan A, is a total failure and they need to change plans. So they shift to plan B, and sometimes then they have to go to plan C, because nothing seems to be working, right? Like, they need to rescue, but plan A didn't work. You, have you seen stuff like that? that that's, what, that's what happened to me one time with me and trying to catch a frog and away. Plan A failed. Catch the frog is not as easy as it seems. That's right. Well, yeah, So, so sometimes, the, the heroes, the good guys, they've already made a plan B, but sometimes they just have to figure it out as they go along, right? They have to make it up as they go. Like in one of my old favorite shows, the hero's first rescue plan is terrible. And so his companion turns to him and says, and what's plan B? To which the doctor, that's the hero's name, the doctor replies, I have no idea, but it's going to be a very big relief when I think of it. When some people read the Bible, they think God had a plan A that just didn't quite work out. They think His first plan, plan A, was to rescue Jewish people from their sin, just like He had promised Abraham and Moses and David. After all, Jesus was Jewish, and so were all the apostles. And the good news about Jesus even had started going out among Jewish people. Uh, but a large number of Jewish people weren't believing in Jesus, that, that he was the rescuer that God had sent. And, and so when, when some people read the Bible and they see how God sent Peter and, and Paul uh, later on in the book of Acts uh, to people who weren't Jewish, uh, the people we call Gentiles like you and me, then, then they see that and they think God is giving up on plan A and he's shifting to plan B. If he can't save the Jewish people, they think, then God is going to save the Gentile people through Jesus instead. But this passage actually shows us that God does not have a plan B. He is remaining faithful to his original plan that he had promised. Yes, in in the story of Acts, like we've been talking about, we see more and more Gentiles believing in Jesus. But as In this story, as Barnabas and Paul go to Jewish synagogues, that's kind of like their church, when they go there first to tell them about Jesus, we can tell that God is not giving up on his people of Israel. He's not going to go back on his promises that he made to Abraham and Moses and David. He's still sending the good news of Jesus to Jewish people. He loves them. He's not going to give up on them. And guys, seeing God's faithfulness by sticking to His promises, sticking to His plan, that gives you and me reason for real hope. It tells us that once God starts something, He always finishes it. In Jesus, He is saving Jewish people and Gentile people, making us into His one people together. In Jesus, God is acting on the plan that He made even before the world began, a plan that includes you and me, rescuing us from our sin through Jesus. And because our God always finishes the plans that He starts, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, guys, thanks. You can go back. If you've not done so already, you can open your Bibles
1: to uh, Acts chapter 13, to this uh, passage uh, we are looking at this morning uh, that tells uh, the story of the the beginning of uh, Barnabas and Saul's first uh, missionary journey. Last Sunday we, we saw them uh, set apart and commissioned by the church in Antioch for the work that the Spirit had for them to do. Uh, and now this morning we we see them beginning that work as they head off from Uh, From Antioch down to uh, this port sound, Seleucia, uh, maybe some 16 miles from Antioch, the the closest port uh, where they could get on a boat. And from there they sail to uh, Cyprus, a large island in the Mediterranean, maybe uh, 60 miles off the coast. We're not told exactly how Barnabas and Saul decided that they were going to go to Cyprus, but we know from earlier in Acts that Barnabas was from Cyprus, and so it's possible that that may have played some role in their decision to to go there first. But however the decision was made, we're told there in verse 5 that they had John Mark with them. Remember, John Mark was the one whom they had brought with them back from Jerusalem, and they had brought him along as an assistant, someone to to serve them as they were on this missionary journey, and and probably something of an apprentice as well, learning uh, the work of evangelism for himself. Nothing more is going to be said about him at this point, but uh, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that his presence is going to become significant in the coming days. It's actually a a disagreement about uh, taking John Mark on the second missionary journey uh, that's going to lead to Barnabas and Saul each going uh, their separate ways, and we'll we'll deal with that when we come to it in Luke's narrative. But here, the, the focus is on Barnabas and Saul's time on Cyprus. And it's worth noting that from this point forward, Saul uh, will will be called by his Gentile name in Luke's narrative. From this point forward, he will be referred to as Paul. And almost certainly that is because from this point forward, we are going to see Saul not in a Jewish context... But in a Gentile context, he is the apostle to the Gentiles, the the apostle called to take the gospel to the uncircumcised. And that is beginning here uh, in Cyprus. However, even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and even though he's going to, from this point forward, go by his Gentile name of Paul... We are told that when they arrive in Salamis, the the port city on the eastern side of Cyprus, the the port city on uh, the, the side closest to the coast, We're told that they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They they went to the synagogues there in that town. And this is a pattern that we will see repeated throughout Paul's missionary journeys. As as he travels, even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, again and again he will go first to the synagogues uh, to proclaim the word of God there when he arrives in a new town. And I think it's important for us to understand the significance of this, because because it is a significant decision that they go to the synagogues first. Now, it would be possible to to see the decision to go first to the synagogues, to to these Jewish places of worship. It would be possible to see that as a, a merely pragmatic strategy. After all, the the synagogues were the established gathering place of of those who were most likely to give Paul a hearing. Paul is a Jew. He's he's proclaiming the, the Jewish Messiah. Those most likely to listen to him are the Jews who were already gathered at the synagogue. And so, practically speaking, it just makes sense when Paul arrives in a new town to go first to the synagogues. However, I do not think that that Paul's decision to to go first to the synagogues is a merely pragmatic strategy. But rather, it is a principled choice. We we see this uh, set forth in in his letters. For for example, in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes of his desire to go to Rome and to preach the gospel there. And what does he write? He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. Why am I not ashamed? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then he adds this line. To the Jew first and also the Greek. So here is Paul speaking of his desire to to preach the gospel in Rome. This gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And yet he refers to this gospel as the good news of God's salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. He wants to preach to, to everyone, but in some sense, the message goes first to the Jews. And it is, it is that priority of the Jews that, that may, helps us make sense of, of Paul's decision to go to the synagogues first whenever he enters into a new town. But what does it mean? In what sense... Is the gospel first to the Jews? Let me say first what it doesn't mean. It does not mean uh, that the Jews get a first-class salvation while everyone else is is second-class in the kingdom. Paul makes this clear in his letter to the Galatians when he writes that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is the gospel of salvation for all who believe. Everyone who believes. Anyone who who sets their hope upon Him as their Savior. Anyone who, who calls Him Lord will never be put to shame. There is no first class salvation in the kingdom. We are all saved in Christ. We are all one in Him. As Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for any and all who receive and rest upon Him for their salvation. As he says later in his letter to the Romans, there is no distinction. For all, Jew and Greek alike, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul says that the gospel is for the Jew first and also the Greek, he cannot mean that the Jew somehow receives a first-class salvation while the Jews are are confined to some sort of second-class status in the kingdom. But what does it mean then to say that the Jews are first? The point seems to be that the gospel of Jesus is not something entirely new it is not something entirely distinct from the faith first proclaimed to the jews proclaimed to the old testament people of god on the contrary the gospel of jesus is the fulfillment of that gospel first proclaimed to the jews the gospel of jesus christ is the consummation it is the the fulfillment Of the faith of the Old Testament saints. We need to understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. We'll be approaching Advent in the months and weeks ahead, and we will sing of the long expected Jesus. That is who he is. Jesus is the long promised, long expected Savior. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that God put him forth as a propitiation, that is, as an atoning sacrifice, a a sacrifice that, that brings the forgiveness of sins. God put Jesus forth as a propitiation to be received by faith in order to demonstrate his own righteousness. But how is it that the the setting forth of Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins, how does that demonstrate the righteousness of God? Well, one way is that it demonstrates the righteousness of God and that it shows him to be faithful to his promises. God does what he promised to do, And this is why Paul will go on in his letter to the Romans to, to, to speak of Abraham and of David and say that these, uh, these Old Testament saints believed and were saved by the same gospel that he now is eager to proclaim in Rome. Just this last week, I was, I was listening to uh, a podcast, and I heard the, the speaker on the podcast refer to Christianity as a 2,000-year-old religion. And, and he was trying to, to drive home the point that this is a religion with, with ancient roots. And I, and I understand what he was doing, but I want to tell him he didn't go back far enough. Christianity is not a 2,000-year-old religion. It is actually much older than that. It goes back not only to Jesus, it goes back even before Abraham, it's, it's more than 4,000 years old. It goes back all the way to the beginning. It goes all the way back to Adam. It goes all the way back to those promises made in the garden after our first parents rebelled by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is the point. That is the point that Paul is driving home every time he decides to go first to the Jewish Synagogues. He is announcing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the, the Jewish Messiah, the, the child of Abraham, that he is David's greater son, that he is the long promised Savior. God did not forget or, or set aside or annul the promises that he had made to Israel. He did not forsake his chosen people, even when they were unfaithful. He remained faithful. And he fulfilled all his promises in his son. In him, all his promises are yes and amen. And think about what that means for us today not only means that the the gospel is open to us, that that as Gentiles, we have the opportunity to to believe and receive salvation through Jesus Christ, but it means that our God is a promise keeping God. As as Sam was saying to the kids, it it means that that we can trust God to bring to completion the good work that he has begun. Because our God is not a man that he should lie. He is not a man that he should change his mind. He does not set aside his, his promises. He does not resort to a plan B. He does not change direction. Our God is a God who does what He says He's going to do. Our God is a God who brings to completion His purposes. And He has said, if you put your faith in His Son, if you receive and rest upon Him alone for your salvation, as He is offered to you in the Gospel, then He will bring you to glory. You will be in Him a child of God and an heir of the coming kingdom. And we can trust that God will never set aside those promises. Because our God is a faithful God. Our God is a God who does what he says. That's the first thing that we see. That's why it's so important that that Paul again and again goes to the synagogues. He's saying, listen, God has not changed his mind. God has not annulled his promises. God is, is proclaiming salvation to his people. And yes, that salvation will overflow uh, the the bounds of the people of Israel. It will flow to the very ends of the earth. But it is the gospel that was first proclaimed to the Jews. And it is the gospel that is still for the Jews. If they will only believe. But of course, that's the second thing that we see. Why does Paul go to the Jewish synagogues? Because they need to know about this one who has come as the fulfillment of their faith. They need to know that the Messiah that they're waiting for, the consolation of Israel, has come. Because the second thing that we see in Paul going to the synagogues is that Judaism without Jesus is a false religion. Judaism without the fulfillment does not save. God is absolutely faithful to his promises. He put forward his son as the as the needed propitiation, as the, as the needed atoning sacrifice. But that sacrifice, that savior, must be received by faith. The one who does not receive the Son does not receive. Salvation. We, we see this in Paul's uh, decision to, to go to the synagogues and to proclaim Jesus there. They need to hear about him. But we see it also in his encounter with uh, Alamas, this, uh, this magician whose name is Jesus. We read there in verse 6 that when they had gone through the whole island, so they they started there on the east coast, they went all the way to the the west coast. Eventually they are summoned by the the pro-council of the island to to come and to to proclaim to him this gospel that they are proclaiming throughout his land. And we're told that when they come to uh, 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 the opposite corner in Paphos, they, they come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was somehow with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now the name Jesus here, you have to understand, has nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was a common name, meaning Yahweh saves. It was equivalent to the Old Testament name of Joshua. And Bar simply means the son of. So here we have a man, a magician, who is the son of a Jewish man named Jesus, or, or Joseph. And we're told that his other name was Eliamus which Luke tells us means magician. And so Luke tells us that this man is, is a Jew, but that, but that he is a magician. And as a magician, he is a false prophet. A prophet, you remember, is one who, who speaks for God. One who, who speaks the very words of God with, with God's own authority. A false prophet, then... Is someone who claims to speak God's words, who claims to speak with God's authority, but who really speaks only for himself, speaks at his own initiative. A false prophet is a pretender. And Luke tells us that is who Eliamus was. He was a Jew, the son of a man named Yahweh saves, who claimed to speak for Yahweh, just like the prophets of old, but who in truth did not. Now, no doubt Sergius Paulus kept him in his court because, because he considered him a wise man. It was not uncommon for uh, educated Romans to believe in signs and, and omens in that day. And therefore, they usually would keep together a, a great uh, cohort of wise men and magicians from different uh, backgrounds and from, from different traditions so that they could, they could hear from all the different perspectives and, and try to make sense of, of the world in which they were, were living. Eliasmas claimed to be such a wise man, and so he was in the court of Sergius Paulus, but of course, Luke tells us that uh, he was not. And it was the tr- and it was that truth about him that was exposed when he opposed Jesus, or when he opposed the gospel of Jesus, proclaimed by Paul, when he, when he attempted to, to convince the proconsul not uh, to receive and rest upon this one proclaimed as the savior of the world. We're told in in verse 8 that he sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And that that he did that, that he tried to dissuade him from from believing in Jesus, that he tried to to turn him away from the long-promised Savior, is what shows us that he is, in fact, a false prophet. For one cannot reject Jesus the Son and yet be a prophet of the Father. One cannot speak for Yahweh and reject his Son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. We we heard Peter say the same thing earlier in the the book of Acts when he said there is no no other name under heaven uh, given by which men must be saved. And so what we need to understand is that the, the faith of the, the Old Testament saints, it was a faith revealed by God. It was a true faith. But when the, the fulfillment of that faith comes, when, when Jesus Christ arrives as the long-promised Savior, if you reject Him, you are actually rejecting all of Judaism. To try to hold on to Judaism without Jesus is to turn Judaism into a false religion. Judaism is fulfilled in Christianity. All that the Old Testament saints hoped for, all that they longed for, is fulfilled in him. And so if you reject Jesus, you have rejected Yahweh. You have rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you reject Jesus, you have rejected the God of Moses and Joshua. If you reject Jesus, you have rejected the God of David and the prophets. And this is why we must say that there is no salvation apart from Jesus. Why did Paul go to the synagogues? He went to the synagogues because he knew they needed to hear about Jesus. He was the fulfillment of of the faith that they subscribed to. They needed to hear about him because there is no salvation apart from Him. Now, no doubt, in our pluralistic age, this is among the, the least popular and most reviled teachings in all of Scripture. People today hate the exclusiveness of the gospel. But I want you to see this morning that we cannot escape it. Paul taught it. Peter it. Jesus Himself taught it, and it is rooted in the very heart of the Gospel. Think about it. If the Gospel were merely good advice, about what we must do in order to reconcile ourselves to God, if it was instructions for, for living a better life so that God might receive us and, and, and adopt us as his children, if that's what the gospel was, then it is conceivable that that advice could be found in many different religions, that that, that advice could be found in, in many different philosophies. But we understand that the gospel is not good advice. It is, as we we say each Sunday, it is good news. It is the the proclamation of what God has done for us that that we never could have done for ourselves. It is the gospel of of His accomplishing redemption for all who believe in His Son through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about what Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Those are historical realities. That is the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is is those realities that are proclaimed in the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And it's why Paul can say in in Romans chapter 5 that it was through this one act of righteousness, this, this one act of perfect obedience, even to the point of death on a cross, it was through this act, this act of Jesus Christ, that the many will be made righteous. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the very heart of the Gospel. The Gospel is the proclamation of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is why there can't be many ways to God. If it was merely advice, if it was merely a a blueprint for what we must do to save ourselves, then yes, that, that advice could be scattered far and bright. But because it is news of what God has done through His singular Son, Jesus Christ, only faith in Jesus Christ can save. Because Jesus is the one in whom we are now reconciled to the Father. There can be no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is why Paul's condemnation of Elimus is is so severe. Look again at verse 9. Uh, Luke writes, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, not son of Yahweh, not son of Yahweh saves, but you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Not, not a purveyor of an alternative righteousness, not the proclaimer of an alternate way to God, but you enemy of all true righteousness. You are full of deceit and villainy. You are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Paul says that Eliamus is is actually turning people away. He is leading people into death. His words are, are full of deceit and villainy. And so are the words of any who proclaim a righteousness with God apart from Jesus Christ. All religions and philosophies apart from Christ are crooked paths leading not to life but to death. And we need to see, we need to understand what that means. It means that it is never loving to affirm a person's alternative religion. It is never loving to encourage a person to relate to God on their own terms. To do their own thing. To try to reconcile themselves to God in their own way. To do so is to follow the crooked paths that lead away from god rather than to him we live in a day that feels that that it's always loving to affirm a person's choice (laughs) that it's always affirming to encourage a person to to do their own thing in their in their own way at some level I, i think we know that that is foolishness at some level i think we know that there are some choices that are not good for people regardless of their reasons for making them So we need to see especially that that is the case here. We need to see that if in our relationship with the Lord, we must receive and rest upon the Son because He is the only way to the Father. We need to be willing to, to believe that for ourselves and we need to be willing to speak that truth. We need to be willing to say that all men are by nature under God's wrath and without hope of salvation, except in His sovereign mercy. A mercy found only in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to be willing to say those things, because it is only those who will receive and rest upon Him who will truly be saved. The world hates this. It hates the narrowness of this gospel. But it is love to speak these words. Because in speaking these words, we point people to the straight paths that lead to the Lord. And what I want you to see is that there is time to do that. There there is. Today is still the day of salvation. Just quickly, I don't don't have much time to explore this, but just quickly look at the look at the judgment that Paul announces against Eliamus, Because it's a severe judgment. And yet it is full of mercy. He says there in verse 11, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. We're told in in verse 12 that this happened immediately. Mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to to lead him by the hand. And and no doubt that that physical darkness was was meant to be a picture of the, the spiritual darkness of his own heart. Despite his claim to be a prophet, he did not know God. And God used the, the, the judgment, this judgment miracle, to, to prove that it was Paul and not Eliamus that spoke for him. And it's, it's that which led to the conversion of the proconsul, as we see there in verse 12. But what I want you to see is that even in this judgment, there is mercy. For if Paul says, For a time, for a time, you will be blind and unable to see. For a time, you will, you will need someone to lead you by the hand. The, the blindness is to be temporary. And no doubt, as, as Paul pronounced this, this judgment, he, he thought of his own temporary blindness. Like Eliamus, Paul's blindness on the road to Damascus was a, was a picture of his own spiritual condition. But it was that physical blindness that, openly, that ultimately opened the eyes of his heart. Think about what Jesus says. He says, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What does that mean? It means that, that if, you have, if you think you have light when you are really in the dark, then you are doubly worse off. For if you think you can see when you are blind, you, you don't go looking for help. But when you finally realize that you can't see, when you, when you finally realize that you're in the dark, you seek people to lead you by the hand. Even as Elias did after his physical Blindness descended. He immediately sought people to, to help him. He immediately sought people to, to lead him. And that's a picture of each and every one of our conditions. When we realize we are blind, we seek help. That's exactly, what this, that's exactly the promise that this judgment holds forth. You will be blind for a time, but God can restore your sight. You are blind. You, you cannot see, but, but God can speak light into your heart. God can open the eyes of the blind. It's what we see here. When we are stripped of all of our false hopes, we can cry out to the only one who can truly save. It's, it's never fun to be stripped in such a way. It's never fun to be exposed in all our vulnerability. But when God exposes us in that way, he prepares us to receive his gospel. He prepares us to call on the only one who can truly offer us salvation in this present evil age. And so we must, we must be willing to proclaim a gospel of Jesus as the only way of salvation. We, we must be willing to proclaim that in Jesus alone, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. But we must be willing to say that in him they are, yes and amen. We, we cannot make our own way to God. There is nothing we can do to atone for our sins and reconcile ourselves to God. But Christ has already done everything that we could not do for ourselves. That's why he is the only way. But that is why he is the way. And Elias' blindness was temporary because there was still time for him to repent. And today is still the day of salvation. Even today, the Lord says, if you will repent and and turn to Jesus in faith, if you will receive and rest upon Him alone for your salvation, you will not perish, but have eternal life. Because God has made a way for us to return to Him, and because He has kept that that way open even until today, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your mercy in Christ. We, we thank you uh, that, that you have kept your promises and that you have made a way for us to return to you, to be reconciled to you, to be adopted into your family and made heirs of your kingdom. And Father, we ask that, that you would give us eyes to see this gospel, that you would give us courage to proclaim it clearly in this day that all might hear the good news and might come to faith, might repent and turn to your Son and be saved. We pray this boldly in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.